This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Here you go. Here you go. Sizer. Nothing personal word of the day. October 20th. It's Sizer. What do I mean by that? As in a ring sizer tool. You ever seen one of those tools where it's on a big keychain and there's like 50 circles on it? It's called the ring sizer tool because people put their fingers in a hole and try to figure out what size ring they have. And when you're carrying around this ring sizer tool, it makes this amazing jingle jangle sound. That is the sound that you crave. That's the sound that you work for from the first day of spring training to the last day of the season in your last game after the last out. That's the sound you work for when the season ends as you head into your off season, all for one thing. So you can walk around your office, walk around your clubhouse and jingle jangle the ring sizer tool. It's World Series game one today. I brought out the World Series ring. This is why you play. I'm showing it on camera right now. This is the Marlins 2003 ring. As I like to tell people, yes, it's big. Yes, it's got, got, Gaudi, 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 I think maybe the architect in Barcelona. Gaudi and perfect. Did I ever tell you, Coco, and I went to the Hall of Fame with uh, for Andre Dawson's induction in 2010, and they have a display of every World Series ring from the first World Series ring to the last World Series ring, and you look at them, and there's the Marlins ring in 03, and it just sticks out because it's the most beautiful ring ever. The whole process of Jeffrey designing the ring was insane. It, it's just I've, I have a bunch of wax rings that were given as part of a pitch to design the ring. In any case... So the ring is unbelievable. It looks better, I would say, on someone who's not 5'5". But that said, I love it. it. It actually hurts my knuckle a little bit because it covers almost the knuckle. But it's a pretty interesting ring. My finger's sort of swollen right now. But if you take it off and look at it, it's got tons of different detail. But I will never forget the sound of the ring sizer tool that is used when you go to every person's desk. And Jeffrey was very generous, our owner. Everybody got a ring. There were different classes of ring. The players got class A, and then there was a, some players got a B ring. I've told the story of Toby Borland and his B ring and the grievance that he filed because he wanted an A ring. I told you about the ring rules that Larry Beinfest and I came up with and Jeffrey approved and everyone thought we were crazy, except now every team has ring rules. Our ring rules were so thick. It was insane based on service time, based on appearances, based on time on the roster for employees, based on when they were working for the Marlins in the front office, where they were in terms of what their title was. In any case, it doesn't matter because no matter what kind of ring someone got and everyone got a ring, even the Canadian partners who we had, who were Expos fans, who were forced to come with us to Florida and own the Marlins, we sent them rings. They sued us and lost. I thought they'd give the rings back. You know what? If you're listening, Steve Roffin, where's your ring? I want it back. Probably sold it. 
maybe he wears it. Can you imagine these big time exposed personalities and titans of industry in Montreal walking around with a Marlins ring? <laughs> Makes me laugh. So you go around from desk to desk and the feeling when people are getting their ring sized and the look on their face, it's almost better than winning. It's not, but it's almost better. And the players, when, when they were being sized, it was incredible. They were, uh, it just feels good, right? The clubbies were going around and we were writing down what everyone's ring size is. And uh, we had a player and I'm not withholding his name because I can't remember which player this was. I got to ask Conan because he'll know. So we went to, it may have been Urbina. I think it was Ugeth Urbina, but I'm not going to confirm it only because I can't. So we went to size him and he put it on his thumb. And his thumb is bigger than his ring finger in terms of width. And he sticks his thumb in seemingly as though he had done that type of action before. And he got his ring size and he was asked, why are you sizing it to your thumb? Are you going to wear this ring on your thumb? And his answer was, well, no, but I figure the bigger the ring, the more diamonds. Oh, my God. I said, Oogie, the only thing that changes with your size of your finger is the hole, not the face of the ring, just the hole where you put the finger. He didn't believe me. He still got a thumb ring. Makes me laugh. I assume it was taken away from him when he was sent to jail, although now he's out of Venezuelan prison. So maybe it's back on his thumb. Maybe he needed the ring to use as trading so that thumbs wouldn't be stuck somewhere else. So anyway, the reason I wanted word of the day to be Sizer is that everyone in a front office, every owner, every president, every GM, every player who's won, they know that sound. And all of the work that these teams have put in, this has been a hard season. I think we can all acknowledge that fact. It got off to a bumpy start. There were tons of arguments that we detailed here on Nothing Personal between management and the union. No thought that a season would actually happen. Rob Manford saying the season's in jeopardy. Breakouts happening. Bubbles forced to happen for the postseason. But we've done it. We are here for game one of the World Series tonight, October 20th. The Los Angeles Dodgers are facing the Tampa Bay Rays. We talked yesterday and predicted, and you got it right. We know that Walker Bueller is not pitching game one. He's pitching game three, so he can pitch game seven for the Dodgers. We know that Charlie Morton is not pitching game one. He's pitching game three, so he can pitch game seven for the Rays. So it was logical that the Dodgers would choose Clayton Kershaw to pitch game one because he didn't have to make an appearance in the championship series in relief. He is well rested and ready to go. The Rays had a decision. They could have gone with Blake Snell or they could have gone with Tyler Glasnow. They end up going with Tyler Glasnow. He's the man who, as you know, can pitch on two days rest, on three days rest, on regular rest. He can go 40 to 100 pitches. He is that uh, he's the player who looks like Coca. Do you remember the movie with... uh, with Justin Timberlake and Amanda Seyfried, where if they run out of time, I think it's called Out of Time, 
and they have a time on their, the whole currency in the world is time. Anyway, there's a timekeeper who goes after Justin Timberlake. That's who Tyler Glasnow looks like. And uh, Coke is telling me he just watched that recently. It's actually a very good movie, but the timekeeper and Tyler Glasnow look exactly alike. So tonight we're going to see what happens in game one. What's at stake in a game one of a world series? Back in 2003, my experience with the game one of the World Series, we took the field for batting practice. We had just beaten Chicago a couple days earlier, and we are in batting practice, and the Yankees are playing during in the Jumbotron. No music. Often you play music for the visiting team, but you play slow music. We would always play like Barry Manilow type music when the other team was hitting, and then pump up music when we were doing batting practice like EMO. Is that, the kind, is that a kind of music? Electric Light Orchestra, Yellow dance music, EDO, EDM. Anyway, so the Yankees were not playing any music. Instead, they put on their Jumbotron videos of Yankee mystique and Yankee dynasty trying to psych us out. And they were showing all the championships the Yankees had won and all the great plays in Yankee history from DiMaggio and Mantle all the way up to Mariano Rivera, who was, who was there still, obviously, and uh, Derek Jeter, et cetera. But our guys were not intimidated. They weren't even looking at the board. They were pretty loose. Jack McKeon kept the team loose. And the key when you are going into a game one, if you're a team like the Tampa Bay Rays and you don't have any playoff experience, you're going against a team that has been to the World Series, I want to say, what is it, two out of the last three years uh, or one out of the last three years, they lost to the Nationals last year. I did this yesterday. This is called the brain fart. They lost to the Nationals. Then they lost to the Astros in the World Series. I think they may have lost to the Red Sox in the World Series. I don't know. Either way, they've been around forever. What is it, Coca? Could you just tell me so we can finish this show? The Dodgers have lost back-to-back World Series. Thank you. And then last year, they were trying for three in a row, and they lost to the Nationals. Now they're in, in, in the Division Series. Now they're in their third World Series in four years. Thank you. That's what it is. So they've been there. Absolutely. They are not nervous. They're loose. Everything's fine. The Tampa Bay Rays haven't been there since 08. So none of the players on the team have been there at all. And their view is we have nothing to lose. But that's not the real story of game one. The story is you want to win game one if you are the Tampa Bay Rays, because you're going to win twice by winning tonight. If you win in the following way. And this is what the Rays are saying to their players when they're in the hitters meeting and in the pitchers meeting, which is what you do before every series starts, not just a playoff series, but anytime you play a team, you've got a hitters meeting with the hitting coach where they go over the entire pitching staff of the opposing team. You have a meeting with the pitching coach and the entire pitching staff to go over the hitters on the other team. And you have the manager who sort of goes between meetings, sometimes doesn't go at all, just sort of watches it happen. What you're saying right now to the Rays hitters is the following. Get to Clayton Kershaw, because if we win tonight's game and Kershaw has another mediocre game, which continues the narrative of his poor postseason performances, where each round of the playoffs, his ERA gets worse and worse. His World Series ERA is over five. If you get him out of the game in the fourth or the fifth inning and we score four or five runs off Kershaw, Regardless of what happens, what we have done is taken Kershaw out of this series. And that means they're left with Bueller and then Gonsolin and then Urias and Dustin May. 
Clayton Kershaw their anchor, it would be incredibly deflating. Now, if we win the game and Kenley, Kenley Jansen blows the save or we get to their middle relief and we make them question their bullpen, that's all good because we want to win the game. But the double win is getting to Kershaw. Conversely, what the Dodgers are saying to themselves is they are having a, a talk with Kershaw. And if you're Dave Roberts, you're doing this. If you're Andrew Friedman, you're doing this because Kershaw's a veteran. Some players you can't talk to the day they pitch, the day before they pitch. They're just sort of in their own zone. But you are telling Kershaw, listen, we're going to get you this ring. Don't put this on your shoulders. Do not take the previous years and anything that happened on the mound in the playoffs with you to the mound tonight in Arlington. Do not believe that this team needs you to go seven shutout innings tonight. We've got your back. What they're really saying to themselves is, holy Christ, if Kershaw does not pitch well, we're going to have a problem over a seven-game series with, with off days because the Rays are a superior bullpen team, and they've got a chance to have a rested bullpen for the entire seven games. And they also know the Rays have a deep rotation with three starters deep, and the Dodgers are iffy with their third starter being Dustin May or Urias or Gonsolin. So there really is tremendous pressure on Clayton Kershaw, but they're not going to let him know that. And then in the hitters meeting on the Dodgers side, they're saying the following. Do us a favor, please. Mookie, Corey, Justin, that's Betts, Seager, Turner, please get Clayton some early runs. The key to this game is getting Kershaw early runs so he can breathe. And you will see him actively become more relaxed if he's not locked in a tight game against Tyler Glasnow. In this game of chess, you've got the Rays who are saying to Glasnow, just hold them off because we're going to get to Kershaw. You're going to get run support. But the key for you will be in the bottom of the first inning. If we can't score for you in the top of the first, you've got to get through the first inning with a zero because may Kershaw go on the mound in his second inning without any run support. So there's a ton of back and forth that's going to go on. It is going to be incredibly fascinating to watch. We've got ourselves a World Series. Now, I remind you what my pick was. The Tampa Bay Rays winning this series in seven games. Not a popular pick because they are major underdogs. I think the line opened at 210, which means two to one favorites for the Dodgers. I think it's gone down a bit, maybe to 185. But it just shows you that people believe the Dodgers and their depth, that it's finally their turn to win after losing back-to-back World Series. Well, the nothing personal pick of the day is going to be the Rays. The Rays are not favorites in game one. Take the money. Rays will win game one. I really feel that. It doesn't mean anything for the rest of the series. I was thinking about our game one. We had scored a run in the top of the first three batters in when Pierre got on base, Castillo got him over, Pudge got him in, and we were up one nothing before the Yankees had even settled down, before the fans had gotten to their seats. I remember sitting there. I was sitting on the outfield side of third base during the World Series games in Yankee Stadium, and I remember after we scored a run, And I looked around and there were still fans coming into the ballpark. And that made me smile because I always loved it scoring early in New York or scoring early in LA because fans are late arriving. And I always love when fans come in and the road teams win. 
So we are 29 and 23. The last pick we did was on Friday. Today is uh, Tuesday. And as you recall, we had the Astros and the Dodgers winning on Friday. Now, that seems like a long time ago. And it was. We didn't get to the pick of day yesterday. My pick of the day in the uh, in the pre-show was the Arizona Cardinals. I just want to point that out, Coca. We didn't get to it, so I don't get to take credit for it. That's the second time we haven't gotten to a pick of the day. I'm sorry, Paige, but it's ridiculous. So the Cardinals did win last night against the Cowboys, by the way. So I had the Astros and Dodgers. We won two, so we're 29 and 23. One pick tonight, Tampa Bay Rays. World Series time, baby. I'm excited. I mean, I hope the ratings are good, but I, I just hope that people give it a chance. I hope the series goes seven games because there's nothing like it. It's weird, right? There aren't going to be a lot of fans. There are going to be 11,000 fans. It's different when you're not playing it at home. The crowd noise is different. I can't stand the pumped in crowd noise. It sounds fake. It sounds crazy. They've gone to great lengths to make it sound natural, where literally they've met with the in-game entertainment MLB has, with the in-game entertainment departments of each team. They have had the in-game entertainment departments of each team give MLB the types of music they play during games, the types of noise that their crowd makes. So when you're watching the game tonight, what is interesting is when the Dodgers are at home, which they are tonight, even though they're playing in Dallas, they're the home team. They have home field advantage. You have when there is a big strikeout or a big strikeout by the Dodgers, you may hear some like hissing or booing. Makes me laugh. It really does. Okay, Coca, I think we have to tie a bow on the Houston Astros. The Houston Astros lost to the Rays in game seven. It's been a very interesting run. It was their four straight American League Championship Series. They ended up winning one World Series only. But I think we need to talk a little bit about the Astros' legacy. And luckily, luckily, someone agreed with me. Play, play me some music, Coca. You know what I want? <laughs> I want to talk to Samson. You want to talk to Samson? That's from the movie Half-Baked. I'm now in a in a studio in Stamford, Connecticut, and I am zero-baked. But I can still do this segment. I'm going to do it very calmly. No, I'm not. So you want to talk to Samson? Get in my Twitter at David P. Samson. Ask me a question. Get an Instagram, get into the DM. Someone asked me a, a question. What will be the Astros' enduring legacy following their loss in the American League Championship Series? Thank you for asking that. I appreciate any questions that you have. I try to answer them, as you know. The Astros are a complicated team. Do you remember when Jeff Lunau was hired after, as the GM after Jim Crane bought the team from Drayton McClain? You remember when the Astros tore it down and had a historic streak of losing. It was only nine years ago in 2011 when the Astros lost over 100 games. It was eight years ago in 2012 when the Astros lost 100 games. It was seven years ago in 2013 when the Astros lost 100 games. Three years in a row of absolute crap on the field. They had high draft picks every year, number one picks. They brought in Correa. They had Altuve, Springer. Their only draft pick who didn't work out was a guy named Mark Appel, was a pitcher they drafted. Didn't happen for him. I don't think even Appel is in the big leagues. I think he may have gotten one cup of coffee, took one sip, spit it out, and he was done. The Astros won one World Series since their teardown. 
There was a thought that they'd be a dynasty. There was a thought that they'd win back to back two out of three. When they were in the World Series last year against the Nationals, win two out of three World Series, you got yourself a dynasty. Get back to the World Series by winning game seven this year. You're in three World Series like the Dodgers, but you already won one. You win another, that's two. That's the beginning of a dynasty. The enduring legacy of the Astros will be the following. They only won one World Series. I say only because they were built to win more. They were expected to win more. They almost won more and they didn't. You combine that with the sign-stealing scandal, which plagued them this entire season. And you've got yourself a team with one championship that seems tainted because it happened right during the height of sign-stealing. You compare that to a legacy like the Dodgers. If the Rays win this World Series, the Dodgers and their eight division championships, their four World Series appearances or three World Series appearances in four years and zero titles, there is no legacy. They're a team that might as well be the Cleveland Indians who had that great run of going to the World Series in 97, that great team lost to the Marlins, that great team with Albert Bell and Kenny Lofton, then another good team this year in the past few years when they had a new window with Francisco Lindor. They had Brantley for a while before he went to Houston. The point is, if you don't win a ring, you cannot be considered to not even have a dynasty. You cannot be considered a great team. And that's not a controversial take. Rings are the only thing that matters, period. Don't give me division championships. Don't give me World Series appearances. Don't give me great pennant rings, because by the way, you do get a ring when you win the pennant. It's just a small ring that no one wants to wear because it's called a loser's ring. Winning the pennant and losing the World Series, you put that in your drawer and then you auction it off on eBay. The Astros' complicated legacy is that of failure. It's that of cutthroat cheating. It's that of players and GMs and owners who looked the other way, who felt as though they could not compete on a level playing field, even though they had what I think was the best team of the past five years. But they were so desperate to be so much smarter than everyone else, so desperate to be so much more evolved, so much more technologically proficient, so much more everything, that they lost the line of right and wrong. There is no coincidences in this world. Jeffrey Lunau, the disgraced general manager, who came out with a statement after He was suspended for a year saying that he knew nothing. He had nothing to do with it. He is ashamed that he's even associated with it. And I said on this show, he doth protest too much. He's been quiet since he got suspended. There was some thought in his delusional mind that he'd come back in the game in a leadership position not realizing that he'll never have another chance, holding on to the desire to have another chance. Well, the Astros season ended. He realizes he's not going to have another chance. And Jeff Lunau last night went scorched earth for no reason at all, but trying to continue to rehabilitate his reputation 
not understanding, not listening to nothing personal. You don't rehabilitate your reputation by bringing people down to where you exist. You rehabilitate your reputation by rising up to join people who are not down where you are. Jeff Lunau said it's pretty clear who was not involved. And I don't know why that information, why that evidence wasn't discussed in the ruling by Commissioner Manford. The people, Lunau said, who were involved that didn't leave naturally to go to other teams are still employed by the Astros. None of those people faced any repercussions, Lunau said. They weren't discussed in Manford's report, but the evidence is all there that they were involved. I think the investigation was not attempting to really uncover who did what and who was really responsible. The goal of the investigation was to deliver punishments that Rob Manford, the commissioner, could feel good about and that would calm the panic. He didn't stop. They had to create a case they felt good enough about in order to punish me. Rob Manford's reading his quotes, and do you know what Rob Manford's doing? I've been with him when he's read ramblings by people who are out of the game. When he's read, like, what happens when the old commissioner, Faye Vincent. Faye Vincent used to be the commissioner. He got kicked out, basically, by the owners. And Faye Vincent has become this amazing spokesperson, contrarian. He's the one who writers go to when they want to hear someone speak negatively about baseball or negatively about Bud Selig or negatively about Rob Manford. They go to Faye Vincent. So PR people will walk into Rob Manford's office and they'll read him. Hey, did you see what Faye said? He said the following five things. Rob Manford looks up. Bud Selig did the same thing because I've been in the room when both of them have seen comments by Faye Vincent. He looks up. He looks down. He looks away and says, "Okay, what's next? Like he's Jed Bartlett in the West Wing. They don't care. One tinker's dam. How's that for a mixed metaphor? They don't give a tinker's dam and they don't care one iota about Faye Vincent. And that's what they're doing to Jeff Lunau. They literally could not be bothered with these statements. The reason I want to bring them out to you is I want to give you all an example of what not to do. You know me, I don't want to be back in the game. And I'm very honest about everything. And my scorched earth is not personal at all, even if you think once in a while it, it, it gets too close to the line. But the reason it's not personal is that there's no reason to be personal when you've got the facts and you've got the memory and you've got the stories to tell that actually happened. What Jeff Lunau did here was so blatantly trying to again take the focus off him, which is preposterous. Because you all know better. If you're watching this, or you're listening to this on wherever you get your podcasts and downloading and subscribing. Thank you. You know very well that Lunau ruled that team with his owner, Jim Crane, with a meddling, not pejorative, but a meddling iron fist. Meaning that there was not a player who took a crap without the GM note. There was not a scouting report given to the manager that was not approved by the GM. There was not a lineup that was put out there and a batting order that was not approved by the GM. There was not a capital expense in the form of a camera or a dugout TV that was not approved by Jeff Lunau. There was not one thing. And so for him to say, 
that there were other people involved. Well, of course there were. Jeff Lunau didn't hang up the TV in the dugout. Jeff Lunau didn't set up the camera in center field. Jeff Lunau didn't hit the garbage can. There were computer programs and algorithms that Jeff Lunau had that were prepared for and invented by his analytics department. Everyone knows that. Everyone knows that there were people doing their job because that's what they were told to do. Now, I could get into a tired discussion with you easily about what to do when your boss tells you to do something that you know is wrong, that you cannot just blindly follow. But that said, when you are in the baseball department and you're in the analytics department and you're 23 years old and you've written a code to steal signs, you're going to tell the GM and your boss, your direct report, that you've got this done. You know very well it's going to be used to steal signs, even if you're told, by the way, we're never going to use this in-game. Never, 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 never. You know exactly what it's going to be used for because when you are in the video department or the analytics department, you're watching the game, and you are seeing the Houston Astros hitters not biting on any curveballs. You're seeing them get down on the knob when they're sitting dead red fastballs, and they're connecting and crushing. You know exactly what your work's being used for, but you can turn a blind eye, put your head in the sand and say, listen, all I did was prepare a report because I thought we were going to use it for advanced scouting. But then your GM goes public, your old GM goes public saying that there's still people there who knew about this. Give me a break. The reason why Jim Crane wasn't punished and you were is because Rob had to make sure that he kept 23 votes in the ownership to keep his job. Every single owner in Major League Baseball knows that Jim Crane knew about this and was involved. Every single one. And every single GM or president of baseball operations knows that Jeff Lunau not only was involved, but was the architect of this sign stealing because every single other president and GM knows when their own team is stealing signs. Their legacy. What is their legacy? Cheating and losing. Okay, when we come back, I had a listener who asked me to watch a movie, and I did. So we'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. 
Welcome back to Nothing Personal. I get movie suggestions. I watch one every day. I get movie suggestions from listeners and from viewers on the YouTube channel, Nothing Personal with David Sampson. I put them on a list. I can't get to everyone. I'll watch a trailer and uh, I'll try to watch as many as I can. So someone told me to watch something called Everybody's Everything. And it's a documentary about a singer and his name is Little Peep. So it's confession time. It's been eight minutes since my last confession. But I must say, I had never heard of Little Peep. And I still wanted to watch it because I love musical documentaries and I wanted to learn. I love learning about things. Um, Coca, why are you saying L-I-L? Does that mean he's not pronounced Little Peep? Is it literally Lil Peep? I don't think that's true. But anyway, it could be Lil. I think it's Little Peep, although he wasn't very short at all. Anyway, his name is Peep. It's Little Bo Peep, isn't it? Or is it Lil Bo Peep? It may be Little, Little Bo Peep, come catch your sheep and we'll be there for the slaughter. I don't think that's how it goes. What a sad story. I want to ask you all a question. Peep is dead. Spoiler alert, he died of an overdose. A little controversially died on his tour bus with his entire posse on the bus. They just didn't check on him for four hours. The documentary talks about what a good person he was. His name is Gus. Talked about what he did for everyone, how responsibly he felt for everyone, how he shot to stardom is really a, a very confused person with a bad childhood. Who doesn't have a confused bad childhood? There is narration done by his grandfather in the form of letters to Gus. His grandfather sounds exactly like Brooks in Shawshank Redemption when Brooks is doing his narration. And I was taken by the following concept. When we are fans of athletes and fans of musicians, and we stand idly by and watch these musicians basically drive themselves to death. And we watch them as they are drug addicts and out of control. And we don't care because they're providing us entertainment. We don't care because they are living a life that we believe is glamorous. We believe it's exciting. My question for you is this. Would you want your child to have the life of little people would you want your sibling to have the life of Lil Peep? There's money, there's fame, there's fortune, there's misery, there's depression, there's drug addiction, and then there's death. Is it worth it? It's like a shooting star. Shooting stars are to me one of the most beautiful things in the sky incredibly bright, but then they're gone. They fade to black. So many musicians have died young. So many actors have died young. I find myself feeling guilty when I laugh at Chris Farley and when he uses his weight in his comedy. Love John Belushi, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Amy Winehouse. I could do an entire show on musicians who have died young. 
actors who have died young, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Their addiction is what fuels their creativity, they say. Their addiction is what helps them cope with the fact that they're a shooting star. They acknowledge that they're a shooting star while it's happening. Does that mean people who acknowledge that they're not going to live long lives, that we should just let them go? Reminds me of some interviews that happen of kids in the inner city who don't get any breaks, don't get any luck, feel like they have no choices to make. When you ask them, what are you going to, what's your life going to be like when you're 52? And they answer 52, I'm never going to be 52. And then we go back to eating our dinner, trying to make a difference as best as we can, knowing we can't. I just had a hard time watching that documentary, Coca, because I felt that, uh, People talk to me about the 27 Club and all the musicians who died 27. People talk to me and and want me to review things. And I just find myself troubled by my absolute willingness to be entertained by these musicians after they're dead. I still listen to their music, to watch the movies of these actors. And I feel zero, literally zero guilt over it. And I was watching Everybody's Everything and I was wondering if maybe my approach has been wrong. And maybe it's not fair of me to need people to live that kind of life in order to be creative or in order to entertain. And then I think to myself that maybe those two concepts are actually married. People talk about creative artists and talk about musicians and actors and authors and painters, sculptors. And they say they've got in their brain this ability to create, but part of that makes their brain not function in what we would call a normal way. And that causes them to live to the extreme and often it leads to a shorter lifespan. Maybe we thank them for what they added to the world while they were here. And maybe we acknowledge that there are going to be shooting stars in this world in the form of people. And maybe we come to grips with it, or maybe that's just rationalization. I appreciate you telling me to watch Everybody's Everything. It made me think a lot. It is a documentary well worth watching, even if you've never heard of Lil Peep. Okay, so couple things going on today that I want to touch on uh, outside of sports. The first one is there's going to be another presidential debate and big news came out just yesterday that the microphones during the presidential debate are going to be muted while the other candidate is giving his two minute direct response to a question. The reason why the Presidential Commission on Debates, or the Presidential Debate Commission, I think it's the PDC or it could be the PCD, whichever it is, the people in charge of presidential debates were so distraught over the last debate, which was such an absolute cluster duck and such a disgrace and so embarrassing because both candidates did nothing but interrupt. There was name calling. You couldn't really understand what anyone was saying. There was a call by many people to M 
TM. So the commission decided they were going to mute the mics. And I've got a small issue. Why is it that two people who are running for president, we have an election two weeks from today. The debates are for the undecided voters. Otherwise, you're just preaching to the goddamn choir. If you're voting for Trump, you don't need the debate to remind you that you're voting for Trump. If you're voting for Biden, you don't need the debate to remind you that you're voting for Biden. But what about the people who actually are undecided, who I'm calling on to come vote and learn about each candidate, understand what they stand for politically, domestically, internationally, socially, learn the issues. There's the Google. All you have to do is research what matters to you. Are you a one issue voter? What's your issue? Where does your candidate stand on that issue? A debate is meant to give undecided voters insight into a candidate's view of an issue that matters to a undecided voter. It's not about name calling, which Biden did. It's not about interrupting and shaming the way Trump did. It's about having a moderator say, okay, healthcare. What are you going to do? Because there are undecided voters out there who are wondering what's going to happen with their healthcare. Tell me about pre-existing conditions. Tell me about taxes. Don't tell me that everyone got a $2,000 refund. I can name you A million people who didn't get a $2,000 refund. But wait, is it true? It'd be a great debate. Joe Biden, you want to take that money out of their pocket. You're going to take away the refund. Joe Biden needs to respond. No, I'm not. Yes, I am. Back and forth. A debate is not about having to mute the microphones because of the disrespect shown by each candidate to each other. Because the worst part is it is the disrespect shown to you. The public, the voters, those politicians work for you. You don't work for Trump or for Biden. They work for you. You are deciding the future of our country, the immediate future, the next four years. Go down ballot. You're deciding things from your community, whether it's community, your county commission, your city commission, your town sheriff, your property appraiser. Show some pride in what our system is, our democracy. Our president debate commission is not showing any pride because they should walk into the dressing room of each candidate and say, listen, here's how it's going to work. We're not muting your mics. Show some pride to the American public and the millions of people watching. Instead, it's like we're kindergartners. And maybe we are kindergartners. Something happened yesterday. What is it about human nature that we revel when famous people or public people have a problem? They have a problem in their marriage. They have a problem with technology. There's a man named Jeffrey Tubin. Jeffrey Tubin is a legal analyst, a learned man, a smart man, 
a prolific author and writer. He was on a conference call, a Zoom conference call. He thought his camera was off, but it wasn't. And he started to pleasure himself on camera. He's now taken a leave of absence. He's being suspended. There's investigations going on. What are you investigating? The fact that as a boomer, he couldn't figure out whether his camera was on or off. That he has judgment that he felt like he couldn't wait to take care of himself until the Zoom conference call was over. Maybe he was in a rush. But why is it front page news? Why is it that we are so interested in that sort of salacious news? Because it wouldn't be front page. It wouldn't be the lead story. It wouldn't be this huge thing unless we, as the consumer, bought it and craved it and needed it and wanted it. I'm just asking you to ask yourself, why do you throw stones when you live in a glass house? Why do you make fun of people when you actually do the same thing they do? There's an old story. Do you pleasure yourself? 90% of the people say yes, and 10% of the people are lying. What's the difference? There's no laws being broken. It's unfortunate only because who wants to see it? That's why you do it in the privacy of your own home or with your partner. But yet, we put it on the front page of the paper. It becomes a leading story because we think as a community that, oh, we want to read it. We are reveling in the misfortune of others. It's like a world of schadenfreude, which is a word I use. That's my favorite word. Happiness at the misfortune of others. Why do we take happiness as a species in the misfortune of others? Why? I'm just as guilty as the next guy. I read the article. I went on YouTube trying to find the video. I wanted to see it. I wanted to see the mechanism, lotion, tissues, whatever. I just want to see what's happening. But the fact that his company is going to suspend him, that they're going to investigate Well, I've got to wait to see. Wait to see is when I say something's going to happen. And if it does, it does. And I'll tell you. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I'll tell you. Jeffrey Tubin will be reinstated in his legal analyst jobs. He will get every one of his jobs back. This is not like people who are racist, misogynistic, sexist. This is someone who didn't know how to work in computer and made a mistake. And he wore it. He gave a quote. He said, listen, I apologize. He didn't apologize for the act. He apologized for the stupidity of the way it works and the way it went down by not knowing how to work the Zoom. The embarrassment that family and friends and employers are thinking, he apologized to all of them. Jeffrey Tubin and everyone around Jeffrey Tubin at the end of the day all subscribe to the same theory. And it's one that you know very well. So please do it with me. It's okay, Mr. Tubin, because it's business. This is nothing personal.
Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors, and add blocks. No custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.